Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze, and today I have got Miss Kelly Patterson with a story that you were just going to want to hear. Kelly, welcome to the show. Well, hello. Well, we are exceptionally glad to have you. So if you could tell my audience kind of a little bit about you and who you are, and then we'll kind of go back into how you got here. Oh, okay. So a little bit about my current life. I am a pastor, a wife, a mother, a grandmother. I am an author, a beginning artist, and uh, I call myself a abolitionist. And what I'm going to abolish is sex trafficking. What brought you here? What what led you to this place now? What was your like? What was your childhood like? So I am a survivor of sex trafficking in the Midwest, and it began like so many other stories where there was an initial abuser in my life. He had molested me from the age of four, and he was close to the family. He had access. I grew up in a middle-income, average American home in the Midwest. So something like sex trafficking, first of all, there wasn't a term for it. And also, no one would ever imagine that it was something that would be happening in small-town America. So that's kind of the beginning for me. Would you like me to move to the next age or? No, I, I, I want to kind of press into that a little bit. Um, you said you had a, someone that was close to the family. So uh, was this like a family friend or was this a relative? This was a relative. Okay. And were you able to share with your parents at the time what was happening? And the odd thing about that, I, four years old, I'm not 100% certain why I didn't tell. I assume most of it is due to shame because there was so much shame to it. But also, I was very afraid of this person. He always terrified me. I don't have specific memories of threats from him, but he terrified me. And I assume it was both that fear and shame. So I never did tell anyone about that. This starts at four. So what happened next in your progression? And he kind of wasn't in my life much, but enough to, I would say, put that wound in me and make me very vulnerable. And what I discuss specifically is something called ring trafficking. And some people ask me to spell that R-I-N-G, ring trafficking. It's really well known to those who've been trafficked, but I've been surprised to find out it's not a very commonly used term. And not even by law enforcement, although you're starting to hear it on larger levels, you don't hear it on the local level as much. But having that vulnerability gave way to a local ring. One of the main head people in the trafficking ring was very good friends with my family. My guess is he picked up on that, or maybe this family member knew him. I'm uncertain. But by age six, he had already treated me special. But by age six, he brought me to a building where there was a room full of men. And he brought me into this room. And the men 
passed me around in this circle of men, gently molesting me. And I say gently because that's part of the grooming process. If if it were to be initially mm, physically rough or whatever, yeah, traumatizing or painful, then you would probably be discovered. And a ring needs to maintain its secrecy. So it was gentle, which made it very confusing. But also, they told me at age six, if you can imagine, they actually said these words, you're too sexy. We can't help ourselves. A six-year-old is not sexy. I didn't even know what that word meant. What I knew it meant is it was my fault. So they were putting the blame on you instead of owning up to their own garbage. Absolutely. And that is how they begin the grooming. The The blame begins on you, and that is the theme they keep continuously in your life, that it's your fault. And even when they begin to go to the next level, the next level, even that is your fault. And they really brainwash. So you're saying these things operate in the U.S.? Absolutely. and. I can't speak to the entire USA, but I can speak to a good share of the Midwest simply because I was trafficked in and out of my state to several surrounding states and not only just surrounding states, but some that were several states away. My father's job moved us quite a bit, moved in and out of the state as well, and there was no escaping them. I liken them to, well, they are honestly syndicated or mafia type criminal organization but all centered around sex trafficking and pedophilia yes and the commercial sexual exploitation industry then you were paid for absolutely how long were you involved in this ring i have to explain this right away because it's difficult for people to understand how my parents didn't know But once you understand the dynamics of ring trafficking, or as I say, the nature of the beast, then you really get what happens. Since secrecy is everything to them, it's a very clandestine operation. And when you are in small communities across the Midwest, you have to be extra careful on what is seen, what is portrayed. So I had to look normal. That's a lot of that messing with your mind that they do that makes you able to go home and switch, really, to become that normal person in the rest of your life. Because by not very long, I, don't, I can't give you a time frame, I was being threatened already not to tell. And small town America, especially when I was younger, but still today, your children run the streets. Your Many people still don't lock their houses at night or their vehicles. Everyone thinks everybody in the community is okay. We're talking, you know, communities that can be anywhere from 500 to 5,000 and, and on up, of course, to much larger communities. But, it, but even those small communities. So when it's going to happen there, it has to blend into the rest of your life. And I went to school like any normal child, and like most children in these small communities, the only thing that was expected after school was that I came home at dinner time. So there's quite a bit of time between school letting out and then dinner. 
School's out around three, dinner's at six. Now, I'm not saying they had me every day. Of course, it's impossible for me that young to say how often, but they had me after school when they wanted me. And all they needed to do is tell me I had to show up. I had seen them hurt people as early as age six in ways that I'm not certain if they survived. How long did that, uh, did that pattern of life continue? So that's, I'll try to make the road to that make sense. My family moved again from that community at age nine, and I thought that meant I was free. Or let's see, I guess I was probably age eight, right before third grade. And I thought that meant, moving meant I was away from the ring. But within short order, they had me. In fact, a neighbor was a member of the ring. So I learned very early on there was no escaping them. And by age nine, I have my earliest memory of, I have other memories of film, but this is my first memory of actually being intentionally recorded professionally for pornographic film and underground magazines. And that was age nine. By age 12, I was beginning to hit that age where you naturally want to learn to exercise the right to say no. And I thought, why not try no with these guys? I learned very quickly that was a really, really devastating choice because between my seventh and eighth grade year, so just after turning 13, and it was summer, the ring set up three gang rapes to teach me a lesson. Those were the most devastating horrifying, nearly impossible to physically or mentally survive incidents in my life. And it taught me to never say no. I can pause there a moment if you would like. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty massive for even a, a young teenager who's already grown up in this situation. But to then be force-fed and told you will not say no and to because of you, you chose to try and fight us, we're going to devastate you in that way. That's not, that's almost satanic. Absolutely. And I don't doubt whatsoever. In fact, I'm certain there were probably people involved in cults also a part of this. It it, it wasn't all cult. And I want to make that very clear. But there were some things that were so bizarre that, you know, I won't, I don't talk about publicly. But you're going to have so all, how can I say that? You're going to have all types. Would you say then that there was some satanic ritual abuse involved as well? I believe whenever you see this level of evil and you see pedophilia, there will always be people involved in Satanism and other cults woven into the group of people that are using you. Was mentioned of God at any point in these, in your early years, was God ever mentioned at any point or was there ever a concept of God? I absolutely had a belief in God. My belief in God was on a very minimal secular level. We grew up in a mainline denomination where I remember asking right after the devastation of the first gang rape, actually. I asked my confirmation leader, 
what does it mean to be born again? Because I had a friend who was born again and she was talking to me about salvation. So I asked and the leader of our youth group said, let me go talk to the pastor. And she came back and she said, don't worry about it. Born again is just a new catch-all phrase you can disregard. And so I did. So, So God to me was like distant. He was above me with a hammer held over my head if I were to do anything wrong. And that is sort of how I saw God. Well, and and that actually makes a lot of sense because what if you experience all you've experienced up to this point was if you try and fight, if you try and resist, you get punished. Yes. What happened going forward? I'll tell you a little something too. The, The first worst gang rape, they cut my back from top to bottom in three places and they did the same on my wrist. They were marking me and I have never learned what that meant, but my mother, I, I was coming home after this. They dropped me off about half a block from my home. And I was thinking, what am I going to tell my mom? Because I'm, you know, I'm bleeding everywhere. I'm bruised everywhere. I'm a mess. And I, I saw my bicycle in the backyard and I picked it up and I just threw it down a few times in a way that I was hoping would make it look a little wrecked or mangled. And when I came in, of course, mom immediately said, what has happened? So I said that I had been in a very bad bicycle accident. She had no reason to question me. I was that honest child as far as they knew. I I would tell on myself, you know, if I did something wrong. So they had no reason to question that. She asked if I wanted help cleaning up. I said, no, I got that. I'm a grown up, you know, and I went in and I went into the bathtub and I just washed away the entire incident. Well, the gang rapes, it was a small community and the gang gang rapes caused there to be some gossip among kids. By the last half of that year, I began to get bullied severely. And they were even calling me by a sexual name. They made horrible pornographic hand-drawn book about me. It, It was awful. I was being treated horrible. It was so severe that my parents made the decision to take another job away from that community because they recognized that the bullying was so intense that it wasn't going to stop. Once it starts in a small community, there's really no coming out of that except to move away. So we took a position on a Native American reservation in our state was the best move because I truly don't believe I would have survived the rest of the trafficking in my future had I not had this reprieve on the reservation. For some reason, at that time, the ring was not operating on the reservation. That's no longer true, but it was true then. And I had a couple of years to just breathe. And I did rebel quite a bit. I was drinking. And, you know, people think of that as just rebelling. It it seems to me the rebellion came out of the trauma. That's right. I always tell people, if you see a teenager rebelling, don't assume, because there may be something incredibly traumatic behind that, especially when you have a child that was never rebellious. And now all of a sudden, my behavior changed. And it became so severe, they had to send me to boarding school. The boarding school was also a reprieve. It was a Christian boarding school. And while I was there in my junior year, 
I got saved. Go into that a little bit, if you would. Um, What led to that, and how did that actually happen? So it's a Christian boarding school, and I'm now in my third year because of the reservation and now the boarding school where the ring isn't able to touch me. And I'm hearing these wonderful testimonies about salvation. And you know, in a boarding school, you can only just be surrounded by the love of Christ so long. And you have to, eventually you don't have to, you have a choice, but you're going to cave when you're loved. And I was being loved and I was hearing the word of God daily. And it was really, truly, I was like a sponge. And I got saved, but I have to tell you the the sad truth is I also believed, and I don't think it was anything anyone taught me, but I also believed that getting saved meant nothing bad was ever going to happen to me again. And I don't know why I got that idea, but it was pretty strong. After the junior year, my parents then moved again. We moved quite a ways away down to a state that borders one of the Great Lakes. So that was, you know, a long distance. And I'm saved. I'm excited. We, my parents are actually going to a missionary school where we're on a, on the beach of a smaller lake. I'm thinking this is going to be the best summer ever. I'm so excited. We're, we've got a beach in the backyard. Day two, only two days in that state. We were out in the lake, myself, my siblings, and some kids. And we heard my name echo across the lake. I immediately got this terrorized feeling. And then I just thought, you know, all these things run through my mind, but I'm going through the backdrop of I've been free for three years. I'm saved. That that must be someone else named Kelly. It can't be me. But in short order, two men came and they weren't old men. They were kind of probably early 20s, young men came jogging down the beat, looked over at me, smiled, and said, hi, Kelly, and kept going. And I knew then, I knew then. And the terror, my eyes, my gut, I mean, even my siblings were going, how did they know your name? I'm saying they must know someone we know at the, you know, at the camp, this Christian camp. But I knew, in my gut, I knew, my heart sank in that very moment. And my bedroom, was on the backside facing the beach, huge, huge windows. That guy came to my window. I don't know if it was that night, I, but very soon. Tapped on the window. My sister's asleep. I opened the window, and then I was given my orders. You will come with me every time I come to this window or else. Well, I already knew what or else meant. I already had seen it. I had experienced it. They'd also threatened to take my sister. They had threatened to hurt my family. I'd heard all of those things for years. I was not going to say no. And they began to echo my name across that lake. And whenever it did, I knew I was going to get a knock on the window that night. And I was going to have to go meet a John out on the beach, down by the trees. And I was going to have to come home and I was going to have to shower. And I was going to have to be someone else during the day. How did you process that? I mean, especially through the grid of I'm now saved. It devastated my faith, obviously. To this day, any song from that that summer, I, I can't even listen to if it comes on the radio or anything. It My summer was just destroyed. There were so many other awful events there. 
ring trafficking is frighteningly connected to motorcycle clubs, street gangs, and so many other things. While I was there, and I don't have all of this, I have some of this memory, and I don't have all of the memories that are connected from other days, but I know that, and and I've actually never forgotten most of this memory. When I was with a guy from the city where we were, and we were surrounded by a one percenter motorcycle club. One percenters are outlaw motorcycle clubs. I think there's 10 top, and these were one of the 10. They're known for being, you know, killing people and rape and drugs and everything bad. And that turned into another gang rape by a motorcycle club. And I have memories of their hangout, which concerns me, but I don't have any memories of what happened there yet. Memories continue to surface when you've been through something like this. So you don't really know when something new is going to open. That's really almost any survivor that I speak to, that is their experience. And I like to normalize that for people who have experienced any kind of childhood trauma that's extreme. It's normal when you only have pieces or I call them snapshots. Splinters of thought, splinters of memory. Yeah, absolutely. You go through this hellacious summer uh, and then you you also have this memory of this motorcycle club. So how did you actually break free of these guys? Because eventually you had to get free. My family moved back to the state where we're from and I went back to that boarding school, but I didn't last very long. I was really angry at God. I was so angry at God. I was angry at Christians. I was angry at authority of any type. And I, I got kicked out pretty pretty quickly in my senior year before Thanksgiving. I was then sent to go back to my parents' home. Unbeknown to them or myself, they were in a city that was the hub of a major ring in our state. And all the rings, not just in our state, but outside of the state, they're all interconnected. They it really is organized crime. And maybe it's the very same people that we consider organized crime. I can't answer to that. But they're so incredibly organized to know where you are at all times, to have the patience to groom you as a young child, because they're they're looking at it as a product, a dollar, not as a human being. They say today that one female being prostituted is worth $350,000 a year to her trafficker. So it wasn't any different then, dollar-wise. It was just, you know, we're living on the dollars of that day compared to today. But it had the same value, if not higher, because it was more of a, more of a commodity then, uh, diff- more difficult to find, I should say. Right. It, was, it wasn't as well known. Right. We didn't have the internet, for instance. So now I'm 17. I'm in my parents' home. I am introduced to a man that would eventually become my husband and then my ex who was tied to the ring, but I didn't know that. He's the first person to meet me at school. So I believe they had that set up. I can't prove that. But for him to be the first individual, and he had a big elaborate story I won't go into as to why he needed to introduce me to people in the community or they wouldn't trust me. And I believed him because I was terrified of not having friends. I was terrified of being bullied. I was terrified of the ring having too much access. You name it. So I hung out with him 
and eventually one day married this man. He introduced me to drugs that I hadn't ever heard of, or maybe I'd heard of long distance, but hadn't really known anyone using. And I tried them. I I fully believe some of them were hallucinogenics, and I fully believe I was trying to escape where I was in my mind. You know, I, I didn't want to be here. To, to tamper with things so dangerous doesn't make any sense unless you're really trying to escape something. So short order, my parents kicked me out. They couldn't deal with me either, and there were no laws against that then. So I'm 17. I'm a senior in high school. I have an apartment that I moved into. And now the ring has 24-7 access to my life. It was the beginning of the worst of the years. They had me for five years, even through my marriage and all that. That's a much longer story. Through a couple of moves, but the ring had me. And when they have you full-time, at last count, after age 17, and, and I may have forgotten some, I had produced 18 professional films. Now, I didn't produce them, but I was forced into them. They would feed me drugs like candy. Drugs were forced on me, by the way. And that's something also misunderstood. It isn't what you choose first. It's either what you choose because you need to escape or what is forced upon you. And most most trafficking victims do have drugs forced on them because that's how they keep you in line. It's how they keep you in place. So, and were these drugs more like um, opiates or were they more hard, hardcore? More hardcore and opiates. It was a bit of everything. They Because they had to use amphetamines, for instance, to um, keep you awake. And this is the other thing. And I have met many other survivors of ring trafficking that have this exact same experience. I was made to work a day job. And most of my, if not all, of my bosses were part of the ring, but I worked a legitimate looking job, offices and everything else. And then in the evening, I had to do my night and weekend job. There was very little time for sleep. So they keep you up with amphetamines. They take you down with, you know, like Valium and Quaaludes and different things to help you sleep. Then they bring you back up. Sometimes it's LSD, but a lot of what they like to use were drugs that would cause extreme sexual arousal. Yeah. So, so that when you're on film or when you're with a, with a, I was an escort, I did strip clubs. I did film. Um, I was prostituted out of hotels. They loaned me to a motorcycle club for a summer. You name it. They did that with me. And all of those require a different type of drugging. A lot of times they thought it was real fun. And I don't know, I think this was to keep me off my balance. They thought it was fun to just, I can remember one instance, but there were many like this standing at the back door in a bar and they reached in, pulled me out and put chloroform, drug me with chloroform. They did that many, many times. They would do that sometimes, even when they already had me, then they would chloroform me and I would wake up to the smell of ammonia which I later learned is what they used to wake you. I didn't know that at the time, but I would wake up to this horrible smell and I would be somewhere else, another state, another city, whatever it was. And I would be, you know, sometimes undressed, sometimes on the set of a film already, sometimes in a group of men, one more than one time 
in the backstage of of a very famous rock band and I was their entertainment for the night. So it was just five years of jumbled, mixed up, horrific experiences that are very difficult to track. You wake up and you think, where am I? And all of a sudden you're like, get out there, you know, and you have to immediately be able to find that. I always say I had Kelly of the day and Kelly of the night, and I had to find that Kelly of the night in an instant. There was no time where you had to switch immediately. And if you didn't perform well, you're going to be tortured. I took a, it's a survey that these ladies present on non-state torture to the UN every year. And we're trying to get laws passed accordingly. In this survey are 48 well-known torture techniques across time. I had 44 of them and I added some. (laughs) I am honestly speechless. I mean, I've heard a lot of stories come across this mic, but I am honestly completely and utterly speechless. It's a hard story to hear and it's a hard story to tell. How did you get free? So I had tried escaping many, many times. Each time the torture was just nearly unsurvivable. I have so many broken bones in my body. They they never injure the fate. Well, I can't say that because I did break my nose pretty severely. But for the most part, they, they try not to injure anything that can be seen. And when they if they break a bone, for instance, they they had broken a knee. And when they do that, they use that. They utilize that in film. It's just bizarre. So they, they're never wasting. So I got pregnant three times. And they use that in film. They use that on the stage. They, there's always some sick person with a fetish. They don't waste a dollar is how I would word it. It's horrific. These people are greedy and wicked. These are not people that I have any compassion for, and that might sound unchristian, but I'll explain. I have compassion for those people who were what the world calls Johns. We called them clients. I have compassion for some of them because they honestly thought they're finding love sometimes. Many of them had sexual abuse in their own life, horrific lives. Most studies show that that the Johns have terrible childhoods themselves. But the studies also show those who intentionally organize and are criminal elements that I'm not talking about your small time pimp. I'm talking about these criminal elements that form ring trafficking and that are very organized like this. They tend to be sociopaths. They tend to be not even that. They simply want the buck just so vile that they disregard human life. And for them, I have to say, I don't have a lot of compassion. I hope for salvation, any and all, obviously. But my experience with them is it's an evil that there's almost nothing like it. Only 1% of trafficking survivors, sex trafficking survivors, live. 1%. The only thing I can think of that kills as many people as sex trafficking is abortion. Then it's a miracle, honestly, then that you are alive and we are having this conversation. Absolutely. And I know you were asking about escaping. I gave up on the idea 
because every time I tried, the torture was so severe until I lost my third baby. And when I lost that third baby, that along with a person in my life, which is detailed in my book, that really saw me as a human, it was those two momentary situations that gave me the last bit of hope. And I decided I'm getting out dead or alive. I just, I can't do this anymore. I can't lose another baby. I can't do this. So I devised a plan to escape. Long story, very short. It worked. I fled to the West Coast. After a short time of things not going great, I met these Christians in a little communal situation. They had my back. I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I had my encounter with the Lord. I gave up all drugs, all alcohol, everything of the world. And I have never looked back and the ring has never touched me since. I was nearly 22 years old. I can imagine there was a lot of healing that has to come after something like that. How did you embark on that journey? Well, initially, I'd like to say I dove right into healing and had great help. But the fact is, I put all this at the very back of my brain where we store our memories. And I put it in the land I call denial. <laughs> and I let it all bury deeper and deeper and deeper, only keeping the snapshots to the forefront. For some reason, those snapshots will not, they don't bury no matter how hard you try. It's like trying to hold a inner tube underwater. They just pop up when you don't want them to. <laughs> but thing. <laughs> but what really happened that began to turn things around? I I had this experience with the Holy Spirit and in an instant, literally in that moment, my brain returned. I had become this very foggy-minded druggie. I couldn't really think outside of that fog and I talked slow and and in an instant God healed my mind. And it's like this cloud and this fog just lifted. And all of a sudden, I'm alive again. That gave me the, the knowledge there had been a miracle in my mind and that moving forward with the Lord is something I was going to do. But his love for me completely eluded me. I couldn't fathom, no matter what sermon I heard, what scriptures I read, and oh, believe me, I tried everything to get that love into me. I, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't accept it. I'm trying to remember what age I was, but it wasn't a lot of years later. I had, let me think. Yeah, it really wasn't. It was maybe about five years later. I'd been asking the Lord every day that whole time, let me know you love me. And I guess in this, my story is a story of tenacity. Don't let go. Don't quit asking because it's the one thing we all need the most. And I was begging for it. It's not that we have to beg, but I wanted it so bad. I just wouldn't let go. And the Lord met me. He met me in the middle of the night. I'm wide awake. And I heard this beautiful wind. It wasn't a scary wind. It was a beautiful wind. It came up and it was kind of swirly when I realized this wind was inside of my home. And along with it, if it's like it came from outside and came into the home. 
And along with it were these chimes in the wind, and they were beautiful. I'm listening when I hear Kelly. And I thought, I know I heard that. I mean, it was a voice outside of me. It was audible. My ex, what was my husband at the time, was asleep right next to me. So I went in. My children were way too little to talk, but nothing made sense in the real world, you know? So I go in to see if they're calling my name for some reason. And of course, they're fast asleep. And one's a baby and one's a toddler. Couldn't possibly speak in that voice. The same thing happened the next night. So I called my pastor the next morning and I said, I, ta- I will explain to him what happened. He said, do you know the story of Samuel? And I didn't. I had no idea. So he told me where to find it. He said, I want you to read it and then do, do what Samuel did. So I went and read the whole story of Samuel. And I sat up that third night. I've got goosebumps even, you know, and I'm sitting there. And then I say to myself, this isn't going to happen for me because he doesn't love me. There's no way he's coming again tonight. But I sat there anyway, on the edge of my bed, just waiting. And then I heard that wind and those chimes, they come into the house. And I literally cannot believe he's coming. I'm just, it's so surreal. And I'm all ready. When I hear my name, I get ready. Like Samuel, I'm going to say, yes, Lord, you know, and I get ready to start with that. And I didn't have to. He just kept saying my name over and over. And every time he said my name, there was so much love in it. I was being absolutely drenched and engulfed in it. It's, it's surrounding me. It's filling me. It's comforting me. It's overflowing. I, I, it's undescribable. There is no love like it on this planet. I have never experienced anything like it since. Then after he said my name, I don't even know, dozens of times, he says, don't have fear. I love you. I love you. I love you. And then he said that over and over and over. And then it quit. And I literally ran into the bathroom thinking, because I'm a new believer, and I'm thinking, or at least new in understanding, I'm thinking I'm going to have white eyebrows and, uh, (laughs) you know, um, like Moses, because I'd seen that movie, you know, (laughs) I'm expecting not to look the same because I just, I knew now I'd had an encounter with the Lord. From that point on, you have been on this process of healing and what is it you do now? I mean, because I know that you're an evolutionist, that you called yourself that now you're wanting to get rid of the scourge of sex trafficking. And I, this ministry has partnered with other ministries who are trying to deal with some of that ourselves. And I firmly, I firmly believe that this is a, a, a evil, wicked thing that needs to be dealt with. So what are you doing now to combat it? So I'm also an advocate. I work with other survivors. I've been working with survivors of sexual abuse and sexual assault for 20 years, over 20 years. There was no nice name for what happened to me. So I always would just say, even to the support groups that I've run for all these years, I would say, you know how once you've been abused, you're just abused and used a lot. And there'd be many in my room that would agree. And we would talk about that, but never had a name for what had really happened there until, oh, many states are so far ahead of the Midwest. They were using terms like trafficking, I think, even maybe 15 years ago. 
but it wasn't being used around here in the Midwest really up until about the last five years. And I still had not really taken an honest evaluation or even allowed myself to go there. So here I thought I was really healed. And about five years ago, I want to say I my time frames are always a little off, you know, how you get older and you can't can't keep your time straight. But I'm going to say approximately five years ago, maybe a little less, I got very, very sick. And my entire body just started, I'd been having trouble for years and years. But the same way I used denial about my past, I used it regarding my body. And that's real common because you disconnect from your body in those abuse situations. So I wasn't recognizing how serious the things were that were happening in my body. And I was battling autoimmune disease and many things I hadn't even had diagnosed. So I got very, very sick. I ended up nearly three years of, and I'm a pastor, mind you, I ended up nearly three years in a recliner and only being able to show up to preach on Sunday mornings. People would come to my house for counseling because I just really couldn't hardly get out of the chair. I was so sick. It was during that time, though, and I had always used Christ-centered inner healing on others, Holy Spirit-led, and I'd used it on myself. I'd had others work on me, but this was a season to really press in and go to those places that I had stored way in the black back. Many of them were blocked. I began to have horrific flashbacks. Now, I've had flashbacks since 96. So so these weren't, it wasn't new to have them. What was new is the frequency and the intensity. And I knew then I had to do something with this. So I began to journal by drawing. I also consider myself a sketch artist. I've sold some of my artwork. What I draw at this time is survivor art that ministers, hopefully. And by doing this artwork, I began to hear the voice of God who had told me years ago, a couple decades ago, that he wanted me to write a book. But I thought he wanted me to write about a different topic. This never was on my radar. And and then I realized I was hearing what I wanted to hear. I wasn't being obedient to the call. And I thought, I don't, I'm a pastor, a female pastor, no less. How am I going to come out with a story like this and still have respect? And how, how's my family going to take that? You know, I had so many fears that I had to work through. So I had to do a lot of ongoing inner healing, obviously, just to to reckon with that. Now, my husband, you'll read about him. He's just the hero of my story in so many ways. And he was, he says, I believe you're supposed to write this. And it was his confirmation that I needed the most, of course, because God was already telling me. <laughs> and, and, then, and then I went to my family, first my children, then my parents and my siblings, and then to my church. And when all were in 100% agreement, then I began writing the book. And then it only took me about seven months. And that was the reception of that book and of my first speaking engagements and me being loved instead of rejected by people gave me the courage to do what I'm doing today. And that is, I have actually uh, last year got to help sign a bill into law that I was the sole person to testify on. 
an anti-trafficking law in our state of South Dakota. I work with survivors. We have a long-term facility in our state for survivors, and I get to go there and work with them one-on-one. I've transitioned the support group here to include survivors of sex trafficking. We've done that now for two years. This year, I handed it over to two survivors that I trained. I'm writing curriculum. Well, it's almost written. Hope to have it out before the end of the year for people to run support groups that are can be inclusive of all forms of sexual abuse, sexual assault, sex trafficking, or you can make it just for one or the other. And it will be a facilitator manual and a workbook so that others anywhere can use it. Or a lone survivor sitting alone in a small place where they have no one can get the facilitator manual and the workbook and they can work through their stuff. I will even be teaching them how to do inner healing on themselves because I've met survivors that have nobody around them. And I wanted to provide something that they could get the help they need. And I wrote the book for the very same reason. I wanted to expose ring trafficking. I wanted people to understand that Polaris, who is the the hotline number you call if you're being sex trafficked, they have received received phone calls from every single county in every state in the United States. That means even the least populated county in Podunk, USA has had someone being trafficked and has made a phone call. We need to know that. There is a organization that I am very much aware of. I, I, I'm hoping to eventually make the connection, but it's uh, run by a man named uh, Sawman Sawyer, and he runs Vets for Child Rescue. And what they do is they go in and they rescue kids from exactly what you're talking about. There's several like that, and I love it. There's ex-Navy SEALs that do it. There, there are people with great vision. I'd love to look into them more. You know, I just, I think on your story, and I am just amazed at what you've done. Thank you. Um, I am oh, amazed at what done. God has done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am amazed at what God has done. He took someone that was so broken and is now using you to bring healing to others. And that is incredible to me. When God says, do it, do it, you know, I, that's the most phenomenal feeling to be exactly where you know you're supposed to be. And I've always felt partially where I was supposed to be until I started really getting in the trenches and speaking publicly and getting the word out is so great to feel the presence of God. And you're feeling that sense that he's saying, now you're all in. I can, I can totally see that. You know, it's funny. When I first started this podcast, um, it started because he wanted me to write a book about my own experiences 20 years ago or when, when I was like in my first 20 years of life. And I was like, eh, not only no, but no. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not happening. And I argued with him over six, for six months over that one. And he said, well, if you're not willing to do a book, would you start a podcast? And I went, yeah, I can do a podcast. And that's how Unresolved came to be. So I totally get what you're saying there. And I still am working on a book. I still have some skeletons to pull out of the closet, so to speak. But, uh, (laughs) but uh, when God tells you to do something, he's not doing that 
to hurt you. If there is one thing you wanted to leave with my audience, one final thing to kind of leave with them in light of everything you've shared, maybe someone is facing something very, very similar and they've received a lot of crap. Maybe they've gone through some sexual abuse. You can overcome anything when you do it with the Lord. And you will not only overcome, you will thrive. You can help others. I read a a quote, I don't remember it exactly, but it basically said that sometimes people need to hear your story so that your past does not become their future. There's just a lot that we could go into, but I know we've been going for a while. And I think maybe what we ought to do is set up a future interview where we can just talk about different aspects of what do we need to know and how can we find healing? Oh, I'd love to do that. You know, maybe like sometime in the future, we could bring you back and kind of really dig into now that we have your story. Well, what does the church need to know? Because this stuff is not talked about within the church at all. Absolutely. I I agree with you. And to even to talk about signs to look for, and what can you as a person do if it's not your past? What you, can you do to help? There's a lot, a lot we could talk about. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on, opening up and sharing your story. Guys, I am honestly, I've done a lot of interviews, but this one has me just absolutely blown away. Thank you guys for listening. If you are in a situation where you are, maybe this story struck a chord reach out to me, Teresa at unresolved.life, and I will do my best to get you in contact with the resources you need. Which, by the way, Kelly, if someone wants to find you, where can they find you? You can find me by my book title on Facebook. And I I will answer, usually very quickly, private messages. And that is from trafficked to treasured. So you have to put the word from in the beginning, but you can find me that way. I also have an email where people can contact me. That email is lifetreasures7 at gmail.com. And I do have a phone number, 605-381-4867. And that will answer as Life Treasures and Restored Life Outreach. And they can reach me there. I will be getting my um, page up on the internet, a website, it's just not up yet. That will be Life Treasures as well. I've got the domain. I just got to get going. Thank you so much for coming on. Guys, this has been an incredible interview, and I am ecstatic to share it. Uh, This has been the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze, and we will speak again next time. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.